it does bring some unique challenges with the finance. You bring up lawn maintenance, like that's one of our platforms, for example. And like that one we did as an all cash deal, um, partly because it was small enough, but it was also harder to, to go get bank financing. And that one's probably one of the ones that's most asset heavy. Um, you know, another happens to have a real estate play with it. We're buying up the real estate as well in these childcare centers. But, you know, those kinds of things are are different for each kind of platform. And and it is it is something that, that we have to take into consideration because obviously, you know, if we can place a, a certain amount of debt on a business, you know, we can we can increase those returns. And so typically, especially with these businesses as small, you know, we have to find uh, you know, a, a bank that will do cash flow lending uh, in some cases, or just be able to structure a really unique uh, deal. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview dive deeper and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20 year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, it's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome back to the podcast, or maybe this is the first episode you're listening to, but I have an amazing opportunity to interview Jace Mattinson. So he is... Just, I, I want to say one of my favorite interviews so far. He's just so down to earth, but so clever. The fact that he he took his his opportunity to get from a, a CPA to structuring a leveraged buyout of a two hundred and fifty person thirty store company at twenty seven years old, come in as the new boss man and uh, having to restructure it and take a 140 year old company and then have a nine figure exit on it. Obviously, not all of those nine figures were his. It, it was uh, he was a percentage of that. But the mindset, the structure, the things that he's he's done and now how that is layering into his new ventures. Man, this is an exciting episode. I can't wait for you to hear about Things in the world of catching knives with Jace Mattinson. Hey, Jace, it is awesome to sit down and actually chat with you. And, and it, it's an interesting dynamic because um, we know each other from a mastermind group and we've had, you know, a few little conversations here and there. But this podcast for me is, is really exciting because I get to ask sometimes the questions that you normally wouldn't have in a, in a you know, typical conversation. Um, so I'd like to do is just kind of take, you know, take us on a 10 cent version of, of your history leading up to this. And then how does a, a CPA turn into a, a lumber mogul to a private equity, you know, you know, nine figure exit and then what you're doing today. So uh, let's just dive in the the 10 cent version of, of Jace from, you know, birth to to kind of where you are today. Yeah, totally. And thanks. Thanks for having me, Jake. It's good to sit down with you too. Been a, been a big fan of yours for, for quite some time. So yeah, I was born in, in Houston, Texas. Didn't spend a lot of time there, but I think the, the, the Texan blood is deeply rooted in me. And uh, it's, I came back, but I'll get into that in a minute. But yeah, I was raised mainly in Washington. Uh, my dad works in heart surgery. My mom's uh, a nurse practitioner and stuff. So I grew up in kind of a, a blue collar slash medical community in, in Eastern Washington. Great place to grow up. 
played a lot of sports growing up, basketball, baseball. Basketball is kind of the one that, that I pursued the most and had had a pretty successful career with basketball through high school and had aspirations to go play in college. But, uh, you know, those, those, my, my dad's six, four, and I just never quite got to that point. So, uh, all, all the recruiters kept thinking I was going to grow and it just, it just didn't happen. And I chose the, the to kind of go get a better education, so to speak, um, then, then go play basketball at, you know, a community college or a junior college and kind of go that route. So growing up in Washington, I started, started hustling when I was young. I think part of it was just in, in the blood and also my parents just telling me like, Hey, we're not going to give you everything. So I started uh, selling snow cones and candy as a kid. And uh, which is, is ironic with, with one of the businesses I'm involved in now, but uh, started that when I was real young and we did it all summer, made pretty good money, figured out how to, to kind of, you know, understand gross profit and all that. And then I had a paper out and a lawn care business and, you know, I was I was rolling what I thought was pretty good as as a high school kid with all this different income. And, you know, I was working hard, but I was I was I was trying to be as smart as I could with the money. And, you know, one year and I I always joke about this, but I, I spent two thousand dollars at Taco Bell my junior year of high school. And uh, that was a little bit of a wake up call for me that, uh, you know, I didn't need to go eat out and I didn't need to spend that. My dad was kind of like, what the heck are you doing, dude? But he let me kind of fail in a way that instead of putting that money away, you know, or as much money away as I had before, you know, I blew all that money and at the end of the year is like, dude, where's, you know, look where your money went. It's like, you know, I was, yep. Taco were, Bell. Were you, uh, that's an interesting, were you tracking that or do you have like a credit card? How'd you know you spent $2,000 at Taco Bell? Yeah, no, I just looked at my bank statements. I mean, I, I got a bank account pretty young and you know, I was, I was making good money for, for a high school kid, you know, you look at like my hourly wage, you know, my paper hours every day, man, every single day, 4.30 to 5, which is, a, you know, people are dependent on you. Like you can't just like take a day off, you know, when we went on vacation, I had to find a sub, but you know, it was basically like 25 bucks an hour. Take me a day. My dad was real, real nice and helped me out with that, um, you know, and didn't ask for much. I think he just, you know, some gas money we gave him for the car and some repairs and all that junk, but he helped us and really just kind of instilled hard work and, and work ethic and hey you're, you're not gonna just you know have a free ride with us type thing and a big sacrifice for him you know too to get up that early granted he was gonna go to work right after uh we got done with that and whatnot but you know there are a lot of days where i you know i i think i was pretty good at wanting to get up and get out of bed but there are days you know in the middle of washington in the middle of winter man it's miserable you know it's cold it's like 20 degrees snowing it's icy like throwing newspapers up on people's porches. Like, you know, so I kept track of all that money coming in and for my lawn care and, and where it all spent. And my dad would help me like, Hey, you know, let's go through your statements. And that's how I found out I spent a couple grand at Taco Bell, <laughs> you know? No, that was, the tacos were cheap, man. It was like, I remember it was a 39 cent tacos. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Or, you know, maybe it was 39 cent bean burritos and uh, 29 cent tacos, but that's it was good times. It was, man. The good, the crazy thing is, I still love spending money on tacos. Just not, not quite like that. <laughs> I, I feel you, man. Especially in Austin. I mean, there's yep. a lot of good taco places that you can go sling four or five bucks for a taco. Yeah, tacos a food group in my house. So your your high school and you went to the sorry, you know, kind of dove off there on the taco uh, category of food, which, uh, but you're you're heading into college. Yep. So I go to college and I uh, went to BYU and then took off for a couple of years, served a, a church mission out in uh, Eastern Europe and Bulgaria. Came back from that. I was pre-med before I left, come back and I had aspirations still to play basketball. Came back. It's like, all right, basketball's done in, in terms of pursuing it on the collegiate level. And, uh, you know, I really need to kind of focus on figuring out what I want to do with my life. And at that point I was like, you know, I just want to own a a bunch of businesses, not a bunch, but like have a few businesses. Like I get, I get real bored, um, you know, with just one thing and the monotony of doing certain things. And in my head, that was what I wanted to go do. I remember I had an entrepreneurship professor and I told him that and he gave me some good advice. He said, you know, you probably should start with one, which I was like, I, yeah, I agree with you, <laughs> but you know, I want to know where I'm headed to. And so ended up deciding to uh, major in accounting one, because it was a very top program at my school. But the other part of it was, 
you know, my dad always pushed, even though I was pre-med, he pushed getting the education in business and, and partly just to understand a lot of things are, that they're going on in business. And, you know, I, th- I felt like accounting being at the school I was, it was a great place to, to kind of land and major and go through the business school. And, and so that's what I did. And still kind of trying to navigate what I wanted to do with my life, found myself working with a couple guys uh, that were doing self-storage and some commercial real estate. And uh, I got on on the accounting side with them, you know, pretty early in, uh, you, know, you know, I think I was a sophomore when I started working with them and uh, really started learning different kind of businesses uh, with them. And, you know, they had, they had that, which I was involved with, but they had a few other businesses and, you know, I'd get in, hear some of those conversations and whatnot. And that was, that was like phenomenal experience uh, for me. You know, I know sometimes entrepreneurs and just in general, it's like, ah, you know, just go start your own thing. But I, I think there's some value for some people going and working with an entrepreneur and understanding, you know, how they mitigate risk and how they evaluate risk, especially when you don't have, you know, substantial, like these guys were worth millions. And I was able to kind of get a, a front row seat in the way they do things. And, you know, they're in their fifties and sixties. And so did that and then decided that I was going to end up going the big four route. And so I did went with PwC, got my CPA license and uh, knew that wasn't going to be very long, but my, my thought was, dude, I've, I've always, I've always uh, spent all this time doing this degree. I might as well just go get the stamp at this point and take the test. And, and that way, if I ever do, you know, have, you know, crap hits the fan, I know, I know I can always probably open up my own CPA, CPA shop or buy one, you know, which is very high margin business. So that's what I did. got my CPA license and then I left there and got into a, an outsourced firm, kind of into more operational stuff, uh, which was more interesting to me, better fit kind of my skill set personality, did that for a little bit, and then had a client of mine, you know, I was a partner in our Austin office and, and had a client of mine was was needing some help. And so, you know, I, I basically did a little bit of leverage buyout on the equity. And on in hindsight, at this point, I wish I would have done a lot more, but going back to like taking risks and how much you can, you know, I basically leveraged my whole net worth at that point to do this. And so, you know, I had no, basically I had one stream of income at that point too, is in my, my 20, I guess maybe two with one rental. And uh, so I did it and spent, I guess, almost six years there and had a, had a big, nice uh, nine figure exit to uh, another company, a private equity company or private equity backed company uh, in the lumber space. So that was exciting. And went through that and then uh, decided to kind of join forces with one of my uh, college buddies and, and kind of move on to the private equity side ourselves, uh, looking at small businesses and and kind of building out, you know, some long term uh, platforms, very a traditional private equity in the sense that we're not, you know, trying to flip these in, in five or seven years. And then, you know, on top of that, I've, I've diversified and I just love business. I love real estate. So I continue to buy those types of assets. Uh, you know, outside of my private equity uh, endeavors. So that's the gist, man. And I'm a lot living in Austin. I got three kids, a beautiful wife, been married for coming up here on eight years soon. And uh, yeah, I got three, almost four-year-old, two-year-old and a three-month-old. So we're busy. Yeah, that is a, uh, a exciting uh, journey. And I'm, uh, I'd love to dive into your working in, as a CPA, kind of an outsourced firm, you have a client that's, you know, maybe a little bit in trouble or something like that needs your help some yep. way, yep. your leverage buyout. So like, so that's six years, your wife, you know, you've been married eight, so you're married. Um, yep. You know, I'm going to transition, do this, you know, uh, what does that look like? What was that opportunity? Why'd you believe in it? Or was it just naivety of you just, you know, like, oh, let's go do, I want to own businesses. Like maybe talk me through that, that mindset when you're thinking and looking about doing that uh, transition to, from CPA to lumber. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think some of this goes back to, to my roots, really. You know, my, both my grandpa, uh, or grandfathers were, were contractors. One was a big building contractor and my other was, was in the plumbing and AC trade. Um, until he had an accident. And so I think just being exposed to some of those environments and then, 
you know, I, I realized pretty quickly, like the reality is like, I'm not the most smart, you know, book smart kid out there. And so, and I, I did a little round in, in Silicon Valley with PwC because I was attracted to tech. I, you know, tech it, what fascinated me and, you know, what Steve Jobs had done, but got out there quickly and realized, man, there's a lot of companies out here that, that go for a long time without any profits. And that just fundamentally, I just could not really wrap my brain around that. And so from that experience, I was more, you know, I was attracted to these companies going back to like this experience I w- was with working with these, these real estate guys. Like I was always attracted to these industries just personally that they were unsexy, not sexy. And it didn't matter. Like, I, Hey, you're probably not going to have the biggest profits in these in these space. You're not going to get the biggest multiples on these exits, but you're going to get nice, consistent cash flow, and that resonated with me. And so, even even before I joined forces with this lumber company, you know, some of my other clients and in the spaces they were in were were like very unsexy. I mean, I had a had a reseller of of uh, electronics, you know, that big manufacturing facility, and they they refurbed all these electronics. I mean, just very unsexy. You go to their warehouse, and it's like hey, these guys. There's no way they're making millions doing this, you know. But sure enough, they were. And so I got it. I got really attracted to those types of business and still am to these that are profitable, but very unsexy. And part of it's like, you know, I can't remember what book it is. It might even be the millionaire mind, but there's a quote in there about uh, an entrepreneur. And he said, look, I, I think, he, I think it is that book. And he's in, he's in the, uh, the used car parts reselling space, had a big firm in Dallas. And, and he said, look, you know, I want to play in markets where I don't need to beat my brains out over profits, you know, and basically what he's saying is I don't want to have, you know, thousands of competitors where we're pricing ourselves to the bottom. And I, I, I think a little bit like that too, where I want to have these businesses and be involved in businesses that, that aren't probably what you're going to read the headlines about, but are very profitable. And this lumber company, this opportunity was very much that, I mean, the company had been around for, you know, since 1881, 140 plus years. And so I figured, hey, this company has been able to weather some of these storms or just in some trouble right now. The revenue was there. I figured that with, with my expertise and, and partnering with a couple of the guys, I, I feel like we really could have turned it around. And so I was willing to take the jump and make make that bet. Um, you know, had it, had it not had revenue, like this totally different story, but given that there was some of that track record that, you know, they just needed some, some professional, you know, accounting and some other things to kind of understand what's really going on in the business and put in some, you know, processes, procedures and put some, you know, get the right people on the bus, so to speak. And I felt like I could, you know, be pretty successful in doing so. And so that's what, what, what led me to, to make that jump. So how much of that was things you learned in school? How much was that PwC, you know, things that you experienced just seeing, and I think you had a really clever you know, insight as far as working within the other entrepreneurs ecosphere, as far as the self-storage guys that you're working at during college that most people don't understand is um, there's systems. There's even though you're an entrepreneur, you don't have to be the solopreneur the first yeah. time out. And so, you know, give me some little bit of uh, some context of, of what gave you that confidence that you thought, hey, I can come into this and now do it. Yeah, I mean, some of it is, I think, the training. I mean, not necessarily like, hey, like learning the nuts and the bolts of accounting or whatever. Like a lot of that stuff, in my opinion, is like just, it's more of a weed out process in in, in a way where, hey, you got to go through this to show that you have capability versus the next guy. And you do learn some stuff along the way. But I think practically, you know, knowledge comes from, these experiences, especially in my case that I've had, you know, in, in all these different environments and being able to apply that knowledge. And so for me personally, like I, I think very logically and I'm very like in my head coming from some of that accounting background, I think, but just as as it being, you know, my nature is I'm very like right here, like two columns, like, let me put it all on paper. Like, here's the list, like, boom, boom, boom. I'm going to execute, execute, execute. I don't have, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I still get bit a little bit with shiny object syndrome to some degree, but not as bad as I've seen like various entrepreneurs or others do. And I think some of that's just nature. 
and, and in what I have, but also some of that's been training. And, and part of it is like when I look at like what I'm involved in, I will, you know, do inventory. It's like, okay, this is taking up this much time. This is taking up this much time. This is taking up this much time. I enjoy all those. I really don't have capacity to add something else. Now that changes all the time. And so I take inventory of the things I'm involved with all the time, but I'm not, Hey, I thought of this really good idea. Let me start go chasing all of a sudden. No, I just put it in a notebook, file it away. And, and I approach it later. If it's something that I really want to pursue instead of kind of chasing it. And then part of that's just, I think just my nature, you know, and, and being, you know, the way I grew up and like, you know, it's very black and white. I want profit. I don't like companies that like, I can't understand like what's really going on. It's like, you know, Warren Buffett always jokes about this, not jokes, but like, he's, you know, it's like, I, I got to have somebody I understand. Like it's got to be black and white pretty much. And I'm very much the same way. And I'm nowhere near as smart as him. <laughs> so I need to stay like very basic in a lot of ways. So you do this leverage buyout into this lumber company. Everything was just sunshine and rainbows. From there I on wish. On, there on I wish. Yeah. Yeah. The first, <laughs> so the first tell thing. me a little bit like some <laughs> of those lessons that you learned into that process or, or some of your assumptions that were flawed going into it and, and a little bit of that journey of becoming a CFO and, and board member of this 140 year old plus company. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I think that it's funny thinking back this now, I, the first two years, my wife could tell you even better. It, it was a grind, man. And there was nights when I was like, what the crap did I get myself into? And had I not had myself tied in with, with equity, I, I may have said, forget this. I'm going to go do something else. Um, but, but I persevered, you know, and just kind of giving you a little context, like I nearly gutted house with a majority of the people who were working there first. I tried to work with a lot of them. And this is like sometimes private equity or just, you know, companies sometimes with an executive turnover get bad raps, but I didn't want to do that. But I just realized that from a leadership standpoint, and this is probably one of the biggest lessons I learned in this whole thing was how to be a better leader and how to recruit, you know, people that want to be led with your leadership style. And so that's basically what happened. I mean, I had to build a whole staff from scratch processes, procedures, get all that kind of put in place. And then, you know, that was probably a, a couple year process before and really probably three years before I felt we were really rocking and rolling. But financially, we got to a point where we could start doing acquisitions, um, you know, on a more aggressive level and doing somewhat of a roll-up strategy after about a year, year and a half. And so that's kind of what we pursued. But yeah, in terms of lessons learned, man, just, just being able to understand you know, myself, my leadership style, what kind of, you know, people that I work best with in a, in a larger organization. And, you know, sometimes it's very easy to be like, I'm just going to do it all myself. But the reality is like all of us need people surrounding us, no matter what it is to, to kind of accomplish, you know, the greater good. And that's the mindset that I had to really develop because I'd come from, even though PWC is so massive, it's like, I'm just a cog in this massive company that, you know, they don't even know I work here. I mean, it's a funny story real quick. Like I was working over the winter break one time and there was this guy and, you know, he, he sat over in this corner, you know, cubicle or whatever. And it's like two or three weeks passed when everyone was supposed to come back for winter break and no one had seen him. Well, come to find out like the guy never showed back up and nobody noticed for like, like legitimately noticed and took a lot of payroll for like three or four weeks, you know, like, that stuff just doesn't happen in a company that's, you know, smaller, right? Like if somebody that's key, like doesn't show up, like, yeah, yeah. Right. You're like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. How long's it yeah. been? I don't know, a month? <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, half the people didn't, you know, I happen to just walk by it every day. So I kind of like, but I also just figured out yeah, the guy's on vacation. Like, what do I know? You know, I'm just new here. But th those are the, the big takeaways from a leadership standpoint and understanding. Cause I just hadn't had, a lot of experience in those environments where I was like building teams and like building with a bunch of people and trying to get them unified with, you know, a common goal and, you know, hitting on all their things that make them feel like, Hey, yeah, this is a great place I want to be. And I want to work with him and I want to work with these other people because that's important when you're trying to scale companies and, and businesses. So was there a little bit of uh apprehension or hey young young kid comes in you know he doesn't know what it's like um and so 
what does the company makeup look like when you step into it? Like a certain amount of stores, employees, something like that. Yeah. I think we had like 30 something stores at that time. Um, and by the time we sold, we ended up with 40 something, but employee count was probably 250. And by the end of it was upwards of, you know, 450 ish probably. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in terms of like, you know, building out an accounting department finance and, you know, credit and all these things, some of the structure was, was, was there to some degree. Um, but it just, it, it wasn't really professionalized and, you know, things had just always been kind of done the way people had always done them. And, and that specific industry, I mean, it's even, even when I was there, like there was a lot of stuff that coming from a little bit of that tech background that I'm like, dude, this is just archaic. Like we're, we're spending way too many resources and time on these kinds of things. And like, these things just need to change. And there was a little bit of resistance to that because it was change, you know, but at the end of it, after a lot of those things, I'm not saying that I made all the perfect decisions, but in, in changing things, but you know, there were, there were times where we got to the end of it. People were like, Holy cow, like this is, and it even turned out in some cases better than I even thought it would in making some of these changes, but it made, you know, there, there, there's a lot to do with the culture and, you know, the culture was just like non-existent almost. And in trying to build that and unify, you know, everyone and, and feel like everyone had a purpose and it was important. And I mean, there was a lot of uphill battle. And you mentioned, you know, being the young guy, like that was some that, you know, you have a little bit of a poster syndrome or something. I was like 27 years old, you know, it's like, I've never done something like this, but to some degree, you know, people always joke, fake it till you make it. But the reality is like, I wasn't faking. I was just doing it until I made it, you know, like, I'm not going to put on a fake. It's like, yeah, I'm going to do this and figure it out. And, and that, you know, I think that attitude served well in, in trying to get to where we're going. And like I said, I didn't make all the perfect decisions, but, you know, it was a learning process too, you know, in, in doing something like that and then scaling and then going through the process of like, you know, selling a business that big to somebody else totally different deal too. So did you always think that you were going to sell the business as far as the exit or what, what were you building when you started out or did you have an idea? No, that, that's a good question. Like, at the, you know, the first couple of years, like just survival, like get the head above water, get to a point where we can start doing some, some, some interesting things and, you know, kind of get that flywheel going. I mean, this company, like, you know, it's essentially cash flow negative. And, you know, it's very asset intensive profits are, you know, typically a little bit lower compared to some other industries from medieval perspective. And so there's just not a lot of, you know, and if you're trying to reinvest and the nice thing is when you go buy these things, there's a lot of assets to leverage when you go buy, um, you know, in terms of a roll up. And so it took a little bit of time to get that kind of rolling. And I don't think that we ever thought as a board and as management like team that selling was much of a on the table until we kind of started hitting critical mass. And then it was like, holy cow, valuations are, are, are going nuts for, you know, where we've gotten to a point with EBITDA. Let's, let's, let's explore this. And then we did. And it was like, yeah, these valuations are legit. I hired an investment bank. And it's like, man, this is crazy. And all of us were like, all right, well, I mean, it's my grand. I was the only one that was, going to continue to, to, to do things. Everybody else was in their, in their sixties. So they were like, Hey, this will be it. Hang it up. We'll be done. Been a career. And, and in my case, it was like, sweet. Like this was, this was great. And gave me, you know, a great five, six year run. And now I can go do something else, take this experience and, and go leverage to do something else. That's interesting to me. So your, your, your business strategy, obviously the first couple of years, getting your head above water, getting some of these legacy non-culture, you know, systems, you know, out of the way and layering in tech. But you, you, you said something there, you started doing acquisitions, acquiring other businesses and the businesses traded at low EBITDA, you know, numbers, but they had a lot of assets. So dive into that a little bit. Like, you know, were you using the assets to leverage to do the acquisitions of these new companies or what, what was the nuance to, of, of the growth that you were able to bolt on? 
Yeah, totally. That that's a it's an interesting concept because in 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 that space, particularly like we would we would like to own the real estate. We owned about 75% of our real estate, uh, which is a very interesting, you know, I mean it goes back to, to Ray Kroc and McDonald's and whatnot, but we we felt that there was a nice happy medium um with with some of these. And you know, you never want to own a piece of real estate you don't think is gonna kind of be more valuable down the road, but to some degree, like owner operated and only occupied real estate is the most valuable in, in, in the world. And so that was what we tried to do with these acquisitions. So we when we negotiate, you know, the deal, it was, hey, we're gonna buy everything, real estate, you know, the inventory, which is a huge asset, and then the you know, rolling stock or trucks, forklifts, et cetera. And you know, it'd be a little bit of furniture fixtures, but not, not nothing crazy. And so when when you're going to present that to the bank, the bank loves seeing all these assets on paper. And in a lot of cases, you know, we would negotiate the deal as a whole. And granted, like this is before we're getting any diligence done, right? Like we're putting something down in LOI saying, hey, we think that we can probably do this, looking at it, you know, backing into the cap rate. What does this look like on paper? And and we would negotiate the deal. And in a lot of cases, like we ended up buying the assets of the business for essentially what the real estate was. Or in one case, we even had a huge bargain purchase. And so, you know, there's not a lot of cash outlay to then go buy the real estate and the profits from the business. If if they had any couple of cases, they they weren't super profitable. But in that space, particularly, like it's just not known for for one offs to to pay a lot of blue sky. And so, you know, in most cases we never had to pay probably more than than one year's worth. And we get a ton of assets to then be able to leverage to to continue to grow. And that was huge. I mean, I did, I don't even know, probably three or four recaps on the real estate. So we had some more cash, which some people may say, oh, that guy's an idiot. He just ran a bull market. It's so risky. But to some degree, I, I didn't feel like there was any other option, especially because that market and that industry had been consolidating like pretty quickly over the last you know 10 or so years. Yeah, that is uh, such a, a key thing that I think, uh, um, yeah, call it luck, call it, you know, as far as the, the run of timing of Texas and the growth of, of population, but whatever, um, no one else was doing it, you know, yeah. and it was, uh, I mean, what an what a exciting, you know, uh, journey. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. So you've you've gone there, you hire investment bank to kind of look, you know, validate, you know, are these valuations was it a quick exit? Did it, you know, take some process, some time? Did you have um, things you need to clean up? I, and I asked that because I've had some other people that, you know, they had some PE firms or other people like come in and be like, hey, I want to buy you and do that. And then they come in, they're like, oh my gosh, you're a disaster. <laughs> like you guys suck. Like we can't invest in you. But because of your CPA background, would you, did you have a better system put in place that made that acquisition or that exit smoother? Yeah, no, that's it. That's a good question. In fact, that I think that was probably key in in how everything kind of transpired. Is you know, I always I always go at the at the thought w- with these businesses, and some of this comes from 
from you know my my post PwC days before I went in with this company that you always want to build everything that that you can sell it no matter what. So if if somebody comes in, you know, think they're the buyer, what are they going to want? And they may want to change some stuff, but you don't want to have yourself positioned such that somebody's not going to do a deal over the way that things are done. And that may never happen. But back to like, you know, when we first started, there was never a sale on that we'd never, hey, yeah, this is the plan. Like five years, we're selling this thing. We got a private equity owner, like this is what we have to do. And so I always came in with that mindset of what we were putting into place that one, it's scalable and two, it's sellable. And so we could scale with it as we grew. I mean, we, with what we put in place, like, you know, we could add, you know, double the store count if we wanted to. And obviously like we got to a point where it was, you know, very sellable and we didn't have to change a lot. And I think that's important for a business, no matter any size, you know, we're looking at these businesses now, my new gig and like, they're, they're small too. And like, that's the first thing we do. We buy these things, they're broken. In a lot of cases, we've got to put in professional processes, procedures, et cetera. If those businesses already had that, they're going to trade at a higher multiple because it's not as much work. It's not as much risk. Um, you know, we go through the financials. It's like, there's always things, there's always holes, like, you know, and all sorts of things. And so I think that's a extremely important point you bring up and in, in just being, you know, from a mindset standpoint, when you have a business, whether you own one or invest in one, make sure that it, it it's scalable and sellable, you know, with, with processes, procedures and, and everything that comes with that. Yeah. I took a, a note of that exact thing that you said is, is that and I was going to say, that's going to be like, maybe the middle of this, uh, you know, scalable and sellable, you know, and the systems that you're putting in place. So that's, that's very key. I want to, before we dive into what you're doing now, now think of, uh, the lumber company, uh, you had, a fantastic, you know, nine figure exit to private equity group. What yeah. Was- it's not all in my pocket though. Make yeah. sure everybody knows that. <laughs> no, I mean, it could be, you know, what currency are we talking about? You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Zimbabwe, you know, Zimbabwe dollars. dollars are maybe there. Yeah. 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 But, uh, you know, what was one of your favorite failures or couple of failures that, uh, you, you know, highlighted, uh, that, segment of, of your career? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't love the word like complete failure, right? It, to, to me, failure only happens when you stop trying. And so I, I wouldn't say there's anything that like typically in my mind that we failed at. Now, what, what, what could we have done a lot better? I think back to the deals we lost and how we lost them, right? Like remember there's one out in the beautiful part of Texas and like we'd done a whole bunch of due diligence, done all sorts of stuff. I mean, attorney, like everything. And we show up and we're expecting to sign papers. And the seller says, oh, we're not selling. We're like, wait, what? Like we took a private plane out there, like did all this, you know, like we're, cause it's, you know, it's not easily accessible and it's not, the deal didn't happen. And I, going back, it's like, we did not understand what that seller wanted on that exit and and what our proposal was. And and part of this is it gets complicated, right? Like what we didn't know until later in that meeting, and this was just back to, you know, learning to do better due diligence is there was an ex-wife that had children and they were part of, you know, the, the profits of this business. They were on payroll and they, they, Although they didn't have a vote, they had significant influence. And so, you know, we could have done a lot better job at probably structuring that to accomplish what those people were wanting and what, granted, I don't really know. Sometimes those get complicated, but the lesson in, in, in learning there is, is hey, you, you're, you're gonna, probably going to lose some deals, you know, and part of it could be you're not willing to pay the price at somebody else's or you're not in a position to pay the price. But I don't want to lose a deal on a go forward basis because I misunderstood what was driving that deal. And that, that was a big takeaway from that one and, and one other one, really, but that one specifically and making it, you know, because I, I planned to, to have a career to some degree in, in, in doing these kinds of things, you know, whether it be real estate or, or business. And, and it's not just a deal, it's also like a customer, right? Like 
what is driving a customer to come and buy something from you? And what is going to get that customer to, you know, repeatedly buy from you, you know, and, and putting those kinds of things to thought as you, as you go throughout, you know, whatever you're involved with. Yeah. I think that has a lot of, uh, insights into what you're doing now. And I think exactly what you, you hit on the psychology of what is it, the drivers of the decision? Why are they selling? What is their motivation? You know, is it, is it money? Is it legacy? Is it, you know, like you said, family dynamics in there with stepkids that can have, you know, difficult to, you know, peel back the layers of the onion when you're doing due diligence, then it's not on a org chart or something like that. But, um, and very, very so critical is, you know, I say this, even the commercial real estate world, like why is someone selling? You you know, it's this great, fantastic deal that's just minting money, a net lease deal, you know, that you don't have to do a whole lot of work, like, but why are they selling? You know, and understanding that backstory is, is so, you know, I'd say not completely critical, but as far as if you're looking for to highlight, some people are not as price sensitive. Yeah. Or more, you know, or they're price sensitive, but you can negotiate the the terms on the duration. You can do seller carrybacks or other things like that because they they just in their head they wanted ten million dollars, you know, because it was eight figures. Yep. You know, and then it'd be like, okay, I can pay you ten million dollars a dollar a year for the next ten million years. Like, yeah, totally. <laughs> like, let's do that. And they're like, great, I sold my business for ten million bucks. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, you took some valuable lessons. You've exited. I'm assuming you have non-competes in the lumber, you know, or, or kind of retail space. What are you doing now? And, you know, those skills and, and uh, lessons you've learned and, and how are they being uh, applied to version? I don't know if it's 2.0 or 3.0, whatever version <laughs> you are right now. 3.0 because you're in your 30s, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm in my early 30s still. But yeah, so joined up with a with a high school or high school college buddy. Um, he's super smart guy, probably one of the smartest that, that that I've ever met. Way smarter than I am in terms of you know looking at, at things like that. And and he uh, went to Wall Street, went to Harvard Business School, and then started a fund. And I joined him, and so. Now we are are buying, you know, small businesses. Think um, EBITDA one to five million, and then we'll continue to to bolt on acquisitions and, and in similar type of roll up strategy that I had with Higginbotham, um, or that I had with uh, the lumber company. And so that's that's the play now. It's it's super interesting. You know, we've gone after a couple of different industries, particularly in the uh, the services space. And, you know, we'll expand, you know, those as much as we can on a, on a national uh, level. The, the one unique thing about us, too, is it's permanent capital. So our investors, you know, we're not expecting to, to turn these things and have a big exit. I don't think this would ever work with these small businesses uh, to, to do that. I'm not saying that we couldn't sell some of them in five to seven years, but in just terms of the way we're thinking about them, you make decisions differently when you have the the desire and the intent of holding, you know, these assets for a much longer period of time and just taking the cash flow, you know, and one thing traditional private equity typically has, uh, you know, and it, it's not, it's not really an issue, but it's an interesting phenomenon that, you know, buy a business, buy an asset, get in there. Sometimes you change over the management team and you hold it for four or five years, it's grown. And then you go to sell it. And when you sell it, that's a lot. That's when like a lot of the risk is off the table at that point. You've owned the business. You've gone through you know a few years of things like maybe an economic cycle even, and and now it's like all right, I'm going to sell this off. And of course, everybody you know loves the story of a big sale. And traditional private equity is just built that way because that's kind of how the industry works. But you know we're taking a very different approach that way, and you know we'll cut dividend checks to our investors down the road off the cash flow of these businesses. Um, you know, and so that's, that's what I'm up to now. And, you know, we'll probably start raising fund two, you know, sometime later this year, which will be exciting. And uh, our model's been, been proven out so far pretty well. One that we can find these types of businesses and two that, that we can buy them at attractive prices. Um, you know, it's very different in some cases, like we're buying these businesses and there's not a lot of assets, <laughs> totally different than, than, uh, you know, what I had with, with buying lumber businesses and whatnot. So 
it'll be interesting. It's a fun ride and I'm excited with it. And, uh, you know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see kind of the dynamics as we, as we move into these different industries and, and have exposure to different industries, you know, from a personal standpoint and investment standpoint. So I'd like to dive into that a little bit. I mean, service businesses, you know, like you said, totally different, you know, very asset light, so to speak, you know, you're yeah. servicing, you know, lawns and, you know, yeah. uh, whatever else, um, contract kind of basis. How does that change your ability, um, to finance them? And is it maybe just because of your fund vehicles, the, the question, and maybe that's, we'll start with that question. Then I have a couple others I'd like to dive into. Yeah, it, it does. It does bring some unique challenges with the finance. You bring up lawn maintenance. Like that's one of our platforms, for example. And like that one we did is an all cash deal, um, partly because it was small enough, but it was also harder to, to go get bank financing. And that one's probably one of the ones that's most asset heavy. Um, you know, another, happens to have a real estate play with it. We're buying up the real estate as well in these childcare centers. But, you know, those kinds of things are are different for each kind of platform. And and it is it is something that, that we have to take into consideration because obviously, you know, if we can place a, a certain amount of debt on a business, you know, we can we can increase those returns. And so typically, especially with these businesses as small, you know, we have to find uh, you know, a, a bank that will do cash flow lending. Uh, in some cases, or just be able to structure a really unique uh, deal, you know, and sometimes we have in sellers roll equity too. And so that helps, right? Like we're bringing an equity check, sellers rolling some, and then the bank will come in as, as, and participate as that final partner in, in getting the deal done and across the table. And then we've got mechanisms in for, for our sellers to, you know, with some options on both sides, if things don't go well on either side type thing and, you know, time periods and whatnot that, that makes sense from a legal perspective, but it is, it is a different game, uh, each platform, each industry, but, you know, I think back to the, uh, you know, you just got to find, find the bank and find the people that are willing to kind of believe in your vision and are willing to take the risk with you. And so far we've been successful other than the, the lawn, the lawn maintenance one, uh, which we did try super hard on, on the bank side, just knowing that it was, you know, such a small deal that we didn't, didn't really need it. But. So is there some kind of <laughs> under um, lying thesis that you're looking for in these types of businesses um, and why you're specifically targeting service-based businesses? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the targeting thing with service base is, is one, I think that, that, they can usually be bought at at good multiples and multiples that aren't going to scare us because once again we're we're looking at cash yield that's that's the most important thing so we're not trying to increase value and you know go from a 5x to a 10x although that would be great but that's not the play here where we're we're trying to build up that EBITDA to have an exit on the multiple um you know we do get them valued every year and whatnot but that's more for internal purposes more than it is hey we're going to go take this to market so the other thing is in, in the services space, just in general, you know, it's it's a fairly fragmented space. Just in general, I mean, if you look at all these different industries, like who doesn't have massive market share? It's like, well, you use a lot of service space because a lot of it's localized, and so that's that's another attractive thing that one we can bring some some you know professionalism to to these spaces and kind of, you know, merge markets and get some synergies and some economies of scale. And once again, getting back to like scalable and sellable that, you know, these may become more attractive and there are some large players. I'm not, I'm not saying there's not new spaces. There are, but when you look at their market share and it's like, you might have less than 5% in some cases, you know, so it's a place that we can go play and, and be competitive. So how are you finding these, uh, deals. And I, I'm assuming just, you know, the, the little uh, that I know about these, the space, you know, that one to five EBITDA, you know, that you're looking maybe depending on the business is between a, maybe a one to three or, you know, two to four, you know, multiple on, on their, um, whatever their EBITDA is, that's making some assumptions that, they know what their EBITDA is, and at least yeah. I, you know, like, it's, it's always debatable. Right. Even, even so, at closing, it's always debatable. 
we're, we've just been tracking books. My QuickBooks says this. Like, yeah. I don't even really know what it is. And, you know, because, I mean, you're on the lower end of the spectrum of yep. sophisticated businesses or not sophisticated people that have just kind of grown some of their revenues. So totally. like, how are you finding those businesses that are attractive? And then, you know, like you said, it's the, the human psychology elements is like people have whacked out values sometimes and what they think, well, it's worth $10 million. You'd be like, no, it's worth one on yeah. a good day. You know, yeah, yeah. everyone always thinks their business is worth more than it really is, which is, it's, you know, more power to them, but there's just a reality of what somebody will pay. And, you know, we're, we're very different investors and then we're looking at cash yield and that's what we're selling to our investors who are putting into our fund. And that's what we want. So at the end of the day, when we're underwriting and putting together the models, like we're looking at that cash yield is, is kind of the most, you know, number one driver of from the financial perspective of what we're willing to pay and what what we kind of want to do with the business as it as it grows. And so the 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 way we get most of these is brokers. I mean, there are some small business brokers. And 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 the reason that those have been most successful is because the seller has already kind of raised their hand and said, Hey, look, I'm interested in selling a higher broker. And there's brokers all over the country. Uh, there's some big players in that, in the smaller business spaces that, that broker some businesses um, as well. But that's the main, on top of that, you know, we, we do try to look down in certain markets after we've acquired something and we want to scale and Hey, is there, is, is it makes sense to go after another competitor and would they ever entertain selling? And sometimes those conversations land on deaf ears. And in some cases, you know, one thing that's that's phenomenal in my mind about the marketplace right now is you have this huge transformation of wealth and just skills and just, you know, this baby boomer generation is exiting in a lot of ways and moving on to those sunset years of retirement. And they're selling their assets, whether it's real estate or whether it's businesses. And so if you can find, you know, back to the psychology and driving, like you can find a business or an asset that, you know, these millennial or these uh, baby boomers are interested in unloading, you know, it's a, it's a, it's ripe for the picking, you know, and there's a lot of millennials like my age that, especially in these services and like unsexy business, they don't want to go do it. They'd rather go work for the Facebooks and the Googles, you know, but when they go make any money, but those Facebooks and Googles, guess what? They're they're hiring all these companies that, that we own to do, you know, maintenance, you know, lumber case. <laughs> we are selling lumber and building houses for all sorts of people. I mean, I can tell you some crazy stories like, you know, building a house for this guy's like, how did that guy make his money? You know, his first thing he does is go spend it on a new house, big old ranch, you know, that kind of thing. So that's where I play and think in terms of like, hey, millennials don't want to go do this. I think there's an opportunity and there's enough of the millennials, but just on a, on a broad market, they're, they're just not interested in these businesses that their parents have ran or started and they're ready to, to move it on. And so it's a great time for us to go buy it, keep it rolling, you know, bring in our own professional management and, you know, go from there. Yeah. I think that's, you know, very, very astute and in a hundred percent. I don't know. I, I saw something like 60% of businesses for sale don't sell at all. They just end up closing it down. And, it's nuts, isn't it? Yeah. Which is interesting. And, and had I learned a few of these things a few years ago, there was a, a paving company. So they made pavers, bricks, pavers, yeah. all those things like that. And it was a guy that was like in his eighties and his kids had no interest in it. And he literally just closed, closed it up business. It's crazy, like, right? He had like these big giant machines that like would produce bricks and pavers and all these other things. And it was just like, just that, that's it. Closed it up, gone. Yeah. You know, and you're just like, yeah. wow. Um, what, what would have you sold that for? A nickel? You know, yeah. I mean, it, it's very, so, uh, you know, I'd like to, you know, maybe give some, some insights, some tactical things, maybe if people didn't go to, you know, uh, get an accounting degree and go work for one of the big fours and happen to have one of their clients, you know, in trouble to do a leverage buyout, what are the things <laughs> that, uh, other people may be able to do to get into some buying some businesses. And then secondarily to that, I'd like to dive in is like, what, you know, 
are deals that maybe people could help, you know, share to you or that you're looking for? Yeah, I think the, the, the first part, and I think this is something that I feel like I've done and I earlier in my life, I think you, you're probably in the same boat. A lot of people that I know that are kind of earlier, younger in the game is find what you are really good at and find what interests you because, you know, they always, I don't know if it's Jim Rohn or one of them, but like, you know, if they say, if you love what you do, you feel like you never work a day in your life. And I really do have passion for what I do. I love it. I love customers. I love the team that we surround ourselves with. And I really do feel like business is inherently good. I mean, it can definitely be bad, but I, I do feel like business is good. It, it, it can create a lot of happiness and create a lot of wealth. It can create a lot of jobs that bring fulfillment to people. It can allow people to grow with their skills. And so that's the kind of stuff I want to be involved with from a growth standpoint. And so figuring out that, you know, what you're really good at and what things are going to be interesting to you, you know, the earlier you can nail that and then just get on the rocket ship and pursuing that, whether it's a specific industry or specific skill set within something or whatever, I think the better off you are. On top of that, uh, you know, follow up on your second, you know, we're, like I said, 1 million to 5 million EBITDA, uh, you know, service-based businesses mainly, but, you know, we'll take a look at, at anything really that seems interesting. And, you know, if we can make a platform out of it or it can be added to to one of our others, you know, we, we'd love to look, you know, we've got landscape, apartment uh, maintenance and services, uh, childcare and a pool service kind of platform under the umbrella right now. But obviously looking, you know, wherever nationwide, we're not completely region agnostic. Um, right now we are more on the West and then, you know, it's Texas and a couple other Southern, Southern States, but that's, uh, that's kind of the, the, the build out now that we've got. So there's, I mean, I could continue, you know, on forever. Like I love this stuff. Like I, I totally geek out on this. Um, what are some things uh, that helped you along the way books or other, you know, things that you gained, you know, knowledge base to allow you, you know, the comfort level. And I, and I, I bring this up because it was like when I started my company, a, a boutique kind of private equity, real estate company, my wife will ask, and I remember it pretty vividly. I was laying in bed and I was like, I'm going to start this private equity company. And she's like, what's that? And I was like, I just read it in a book. Uh, you know, like I, I'm just a couple of chapters ahead of, of, you know, where I need to be like, so like, that's yeah. it. Like, so I, I feel like books have been hugely, you know, uh, helpful to me, but like, what are some things that you've gained or maybe it's all just natural ability or people are mentors or, you know, maybe give some, some helps, uh, guidance for some people, little breadcrumbs that have helped you out. Yeah, no, books, books are huge. Podcasts in this day and age, I think are, are huge as well. You know, to some degree, I look at podcasts and books really, but podcasts are, are, are different in the sense that you get to hear the voice. Some readers read their own books, but you know, you have a dialogue like you and I have. I listen to podcasts all the time. I feel like I'm getting mentored by some of these people that I may not even have, you know, before I was in Gopun, it's like I was listening to things that in this mastermind that Basically, I was like, man, I feel like I'm getting mentored by this person that like, that's where I want to be. The other thing is, is surrounding yourself with people who, who are on that same path, who think alike, but also think differently, because that'll sharpen the way you think. And sometimes those are difficult places to get into in terms of like, you may have to shell out some cash or you may need to hustle or like get the lunches with those people, um, you know. I don't think that that anybody who who's been successful feels like they've done it all on their own. And I still feel like I'm still kind of on the journey, but I lean on people all the time. You know, one from changing my mindset, you know, one thing I haven't really shared is like, I love my parents, but man, my dad is the most risk adverse person you probably ever met. You know, he's done extremely well in his career and I grew up in that environment. So I had to kind of get rid of like, that muscle that had never been moved from a risk standpoint and, and not like, like people use the term risk. And I look at risk as like, Hey, what could, you know, what could go wrong or what, what would you know happen? But 
being able to reframe the like, okay, I'm just going to protect most of the downside on this. And like, sure, could anything go to zero? Maybe, like it's possible. But understanding how to take some of those calculated risks, because I, I think to some degree, like the biggest risk you can ever take is trying to just completely play it safe with everything. You know, that's not just investments, but just in, in life in general. And so being able to understand your risk tolerance and profile and working on that, because I've never met somebody that that is, you know, accumulated a lot of wealth or, you know, however you want to define success, whether it's, you know, massive amounts of time with their family or whatever, whatever you want to, you know, goes on crazy trips or whatever. I've never met somebody who who's like, oh man, I just did this, like being conservative with everything. Like they took some risks, you know? And so figuring that out, I think is super important. And then, you know, getting yourself in those circles that, that are, people are going to build you up and, and, you know, challenge the way you think that, you know, some of the investments that I've made at this point, I would have never probably done had it not been being around some people who think about passive income the way they think about passive income. And by passive income, meaning, hey, I'm going to write a check for this and I'm going to get a return on this and I'm going to track this return as it relates to the cash flow. I think it's very easy for a lot of people. Hey, I'm just going to put a check into something and, you know, we'll just, we'll, we'll check it in a few years. Maybe I'll get a K1 or, you know, I'll look at the balance every so often. But, you know, tracking those kinds of things, like it creates results, you know? And not everyone loves to do that, but I think it's super effective. And I've, I've never met somebody that, that I want to be like that hasn't done things like that. Man, there's so many insights into that. So let's, let's take it as what are some podcasts that you found that are super helpful to you? And then maybe book or a couple books that you've, uh, you know, you mentioned millionaire mind that's, uh, I've, it's been a lot of years since I've read that, but podcasts that are you're vibing with or were super helpful. I've had my own Jake, you know, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I go, what you're like 350 episodes in or something. Yeah, like not, we've recorded that many. I think we've only released 200 and something, but yeah, we, we interview millionaires. So we net worth millionaires, those that are, you know, have hit that mark, how they did it. And, uh, you know, we, we take a really deep dive into their portfolio and their story, which is super interesting. And that honestly has been a phenomenal experience for myself, but, you know, I, I love listening to, to podcasts that, you know, yours is a great one. Just, you know, those that you can get in a, in an interview style, you know, like, you know, Joe Rogan, for example, is like the number one guy, right? And like, he brings some interesting guests on it. If you can find podcasts business wise, and, and I have like, you know, the, the few that I go to you know, from the money standpoint, like the money guy show, sometimes I'll listen to every now and again, if there's an interesting episode, I listen to, to how we built this, um, every now and again, from, from a business standpoint, you know, there's a book out there, um, called buy then build. It concentrates on you know, buying a businesses and then building them and scaling them. Uh, you know, from a leadership standpoint, there's a, a book called leading change that I really like. And that one, you know, really gets into the details of like what happens, you know, when you take over something that's already been doing, you know, certain things for a long time. And these are just, you know, more applicable to, to myself. There's some great ones out there on, on goal setting too. Um, you know, Atomic Habits is one of my favorites. Um, you know, there's a, I, I do, I do read some of the, uh, the major uh, private equity guys like Schwartzman's bi biography and stuff. And like, I have no desire to, to get to that level of, of what Schwartzman's built or anything, but just understanding the mindset of like how he built Blackstone and decisions that were made and like the insights into like the way he thinks about those kinds of things. Like I think biographies are a great place to go with, with leaders like that. And, you know, you may never resonate with like the way that they're approaching things, but understanding the way they think, I think can really, you know, serve, serve a lot of value for you as the way you approach your life. And, it, and it'll challenge the way you think too. I mean, I, every time I read one of those books, I'm like, okay, I, don't, I may not agree with this, but like, that's really making me think differently about this. Um, there's Sons of Omaha with the Koch brothers is another interesting one uh, about, you know, building massive, you know, type businesses and, and how they think about that and managing all the family dynamics, which gets back into like learning some of that psychology and stuff. 
so those are those are my main ones well i'd like to wrap this up you know uh where can people find you and you know they got this one to five million dollar ebitda deal or do you have you know through your podcast through your social medias whatever uh this is the ask to, to the people in the audience out there yeah, no, I'm I'm pretty much everywhere. I mean, I, I don't post a ton on social media, but I'm on Facebook, Instagram, uh, podcast is Millionaires Unveiled. You can you know email me, um, you know, or or text me or whatever. Like I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty open. I'm happy to to help, and I'm pretty accessible. And you know, I I read my own emails still. <laughs> I'm not to that point yet, so I read all my own emails and I respond to all my own emails right now. Uh, maybe down the road that, that that won't be the case. I don't know that I'll ever, but I, I take pride in that. And uh, so if anybody's interested, you just email me. It, it's just first and last name at Gmail. And uh, you're going to get a response from me. Awesome, Jace. I appreciate this. And you know, I was like, the social media stuff is actually super interesting because I like the way that you profile your your kids as far as in some of their, yeah. their, their like trip journeys. Like, and I don't know if it's a month snapshot or a week. It is. It, yeah, it is now. So that all started, you know, I was influenced a little bit by the, the book called 18 Summers. Mm -hmm. And and one, just creating a little bit, I'm a terrible like journaler in terms of like getting, in, I know some people are really good, some that I've just not ever been able to sit down and just completely like write and journal with my thoughts and stuff. And so what I found is really easy and consistent, something I can do, you know, I always use the phrase, make sure you can do something consistently consistent. And that is that is that with my kids, I profile Every single thing, you know, in a month, we take pictures of what they go do, and I make it very intentional what I do with them. I put it on Instagram as a story. I take that story down as a movie and I send it to an email. And when they turn 18, I'm gonna say, I love you. Here's what we've done for the last 18 years. And and that'll be kind of a gift that they don't know they're getting. That'll kind of be depict their their life. And my first daughter, I was super ambitious and did it every week. And then I realized with three kids, like there's no way I'm you know, you get the first kid, you get so many pictures of every day. Oh. My third kid is like, shoot, I look at the other mom, like, man, were you in our family this month? Yeah. I feel bad. She's like the short end of the stick yeah, a little like, bit. I 100% I got three kids. I know exactly, you know, our yeah. one is six months old. And I was just kind of like, I kind of forgot to take pictures of you at all. First <laughs> one I got like a million pictures of. So totally. Oh, I, I get you. I, I understand the consistency and same thing, the journaling. I know that people have, you know, figured out some of that stuff. Uh, but I appreciate you. Uh uh, this is has been exciting. And uh, you know, obviously we'll have a lot of that stuff, the contents in the show notes. And Chase, appreciate you. Thank you. Have a great, fantastic afternoon. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Jake. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.RealEstate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.